Tuesday. Welcome to the Steve Day Show free podcast edition here, powered by CRTV, which means it's not really free, but you, dear listener, are Blanche Dubois, getting by on the kindness of strangers. Our benevolent overlords at CRTV have saw fit to be your modern day Miss Havisham by underwriting the cost of this, paying us to give this to you, the people. The podcast is yours. That's essentially what we do here, courtesy of the nice big fat check. CRTV writes us every single month to do this and a subscription television show as well, which you can access at CRTV.com, promo code DACE. Todd and Aaron are here with us. We'd love it if you would join us as well. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. Last name spelled D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. And the television show we did today... Um, just to set it up. You know, I've, had, I've been at a disadvantage beyond my own personal relationship with the accused in this story. I've been at a disadvantage with the Roy Moore story because everything breaks when we are taping at this point in the day. Have you guys noticed that? I have yep. noticed that. The original story broke at this time. Gloria Allred had her presser yesterday at this time. Okay, I mean, and I really don't... It, it's funny, with my schedule, it's pretty busy from about 9 a.m. when I go to the gym until about 2.30 in the afternoon. And, I, and I'm not complaining, man. I, it's, it beats going out of mine shaft the flashlight. I know a lot of you listening to this later on demand would love a day where everything's really intense for five to six hours and then you're done, right? How many, who wouldn't, if you had a choice between monotony and a lunch hour and two 15 minute breaks for nine hours, and I, I did that 40 hour a week for a living before I got into this, so I get it, okay? I used to be a mailroom clerk, for example. But if you had a choice between that for nine hours or just go hot and heavy for five to six hours, and then you're done for the day. How many of us would choose the latter? Almost all of us would, right? Get her done, right? Just get in, get it done. So I'm not complaining when I say this at all. I'm very blessed to get to do what I do for a living, but it just so happens like everything in the Roy Moore story for the last week has broken between 9 a.m. and 2 p.m. Central when we're doing this, and I'm not constantly on social media, and so people are like, you're ducking stuff, and I mean, I, I yesterday I had to rush out of here to go teach a high school Christian worldview class, and so I hadn't even had a chance, you know, immediately when I see the name Gloria Allred, I'm going to get a twitch, and I think that's a well-deserved reputation, but I can't base the truth off of association. I have to look at the truth based on the truth, so I didn't even have a chance to take a look at the woman she brought forward yesterday and my thoughts on her account until I got home pretty much for dinner, which was, you know, five, six o'clock after teaching this class. So that has been some of the reasons for some of the delay and some of my response to this. Other reasons have been I'm I'm trying the best I can to remove as much of my own flesh as I can and look at this as thorough and thoughtfully and objectively and conscientiously as I can. And so today, our television show is we're just going to have a, we had a really blunt conversation um, about why, unless something 
dramatic that I'm not aware of has broken because this is the hour. We used to, you know, used to be with Trump. It used to be the six o'clock. You knew something was coming. How many weeks in a row did we have that, right? Well, unless something else has happened in this window as we're taping this that we just can't react to right now. Based on everything I know as of 11.30 a.m. Central Time, um, I decided to make our television show today a very explicit explanation of why I've yet to rescind my endorsement of Roy Moore. I decided to do it on the television show uh, because one of my Ten Commandments of political warfare is that you respond in kind. I endorsed Roy Moore on our television show, and therefore the television audience deserves to know why I've yet to rescind that endorsement. I'm trying to be as fair and transparent and accountable as I possibly can. So um, I won't ask Todd and Aaron to provide an endorsement or anything of that nature because this really isn't a time for clickbait or a time for tune in or this was wacky, zany stuff. Um, This was a very sober adult conversation. And so if you're not yet a subscriber to CRTV and you're interested in what we had to say, or maybe that's not your thing, but you're interested in what the great one Mark Levin or Phil Robertson, who's brand new uh, on our network from Duck Dynasty fame and others, if you're interested in what they have to say, or maybe you're interested in what we've had to say about other things beyond Roy Moore, use my name. Uh, Last name is Dace, D-E-A-C-E, promo code Dace, and you can get access to everything we've done here at CRTV.com. All of our shows, we have a monthly subscription option as well. So if that's more in your budget, that's fine too. And then don't forget, we have a free trial period. So if you subscribe and during the free trial, you're like, eh, not my thing. Not worth it. You guys really aren't that good. Kick us to the curb. You won't be charged a dime. All right. So circumstances have interrupted. We've been trying to do the conclusion to our Americanism 101 series for, what is it, two weeks now. (laughs) We've been trying to put a bow on this. You know, we spent what we started this right in, in January. And then we finished it two weeks ago. So we spent like a 10 full months on this series, walking us through what is it we as conservatives are trying to conserve? What really is American exceptionalism? And where does it come from, right? And, and we started with the foundation and it's, the, it's what Chesterton noted when he said America was the only country ever founded on a creed. And so we define that creed, there is a God and it's the God of the Bible the only living God, and our, our rights come from him, and that government's primary role and responsibility is the protection and preservation, not the granting, because they're pre-existing government, but the protection and preservation of those God-given rights. And then once we laid that foundation, then we went to the framework. How do we live this out now? How do we govern ourselves? How do we carry forth this creed? How do we do faith with works, for my Catholic friend over here? How do we put hands and feet on our American credo? How do we do it? And we spent... 28 episodes from that point, going through Cleon Skousen's great book, The 5,000-Year Leap, the great constitutional law professor at BYU, where he essentially lays out the principles that made America. Highly recommended book. We keep a copy of it here, right here on our desk here in the studio. And now we've come to the end of those 28 principles, and now we're at the conclusion. And this is a time for dangling participles and unanswered questions. And for that, I will open it up to the floor. Todd and Aaron, you may fire away. If, you, if there's closing thoughts, questions, things that need to be, loops that need to be closed, thoughts that need to be uttered, reassessed, reasserted, the floor is yours. Oh, I, I think, I wish it was all about just tying up loose ends, but it's way bigger than that. I, all the questions I have are huge ones. And quite frankly, Aaron, if I ask this question and he never gets to a question of yours, um, mm-hmm. I apologize. It's not because I'm super smart, but it's just I think you might be able to take this next question and talk about it for an hour. 
Steve, based on everything we've talked about, to what do we owe the anti-federalists the greatest credit or and or the greatest apology for? People that don't know the history, because going through the history would take an hour, okay? So just a quick context. The two primary groups that emerged after the British surrendered at Yorktown, and now we've got to govern ourselves and create a country, go from colonies to states, United States. The two primary groups that emerge are the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. Uh, you know who the Federalists are because they wrote the Federalist Papers, the father of the Constitution, James Madison, for example, Alexander Hamilton. All right. Uh, chief among the Anti-Federalists, I would say, because to me, I think he was its ideological center. Its plumb line was Patrick Henry. Um, and... You know, for me on a personal level, politically, I'm I, the older I get, the more like Thomas Jefferson I become. Even though theologically, I've got much more in common. My my two favorite founding fathers, other than George Washington, like whenever anybody asks you who's the greatest president ever, I'll answer it for you. It's George Washington, guys. Because if if he if he if he's terrible at this, guess what? There's not another there's there's not a second president. So it's pretty easy. Who's the greatest president ever? The first guy who nailed the job. So to me, George George Washington's kind of like off to his side, right? Beyond him, my two favorite founding fathers are Henry and and Jefferson, two men who religiously did not always have their best or or did not always line up, for example. But the reason I align so much with them is because they understood human nature. And I think the anti-federalist understood human nature better than the federalist did. And if I could put the, the, the argument between the federalist and the anti-federalist into a theological context, I would say the anti-federalist were the Arminians. I'm sorry, the federalist were the Arminians and the anti-federalist were the Calvinists. The anti-federalist were You think were you're like, helping right now? <laughs> <laughs> Good grief. <laughs> Just to keep this simple here, I'm going Arminians. <laughs> it's, that's not how this works. What I mean by that is that the federalist understood human nature was bad. And it could not be trusted. And that's why they wanted checks and balances and, and played and, and are responsible, really, for devising the Constitution that we have. And, and they didn't believe in human nature. They, they wanted limited government. They, they got that. But when you read their writings, they still had this notion that if they give men the option of doing good, they would. Or at least they would do it enough. Anti-Fairless came along and said, ah, yeah. It's not kind of, sort of total depravity. It's total <laughs> yeah. depravity. The Anti-Fairless like, ah, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> about that. <laughs> um, uh, essentially, they walked into Constitution Hall in Philadelphia and nailed 95 theses to a door and said, we need to talk about this. All right. And this is where the first 10 amendments came from. If the, if the Federalists wrote the Constitution, the Anti-Federalists wrote the Bill of Rights, basically. Or at least they were its spirit animal. And they came along and said, yeah, that's actually uh, not what history says, George W. Bush. It does not say men want to be free. It, it doesn't say that, actually. It says they don't. Uh, and it says they want to dominate their fellow man every chance they get. So um, we agree that the Constitution shouldn't grant rights that God in nature, as, as Mr. Jefferson wrote in his seminal work, uh, articulated. But we certainly think that the government right now ought to put markers down and say, here's what we cannot do. We can't take away your free speech. We can't take away your freedom of faith or, or lack thereof, if the choice may be. We can't, we can't make you do certain things. We can't make states do things that we will concoct and imaginate hundreds of years from now. And that's where the anti-federalists came along and they said, we'd like some more specifics. We want to nail this puppy down all the more. 
Now, both sides have a flaw in their argument. In the, so I would have, I think, given where I'm at theologically, I would have been an anti-federalist. But because of my total depravity, I would have also voted for the Constitution because I would have accepted that sin, sinful human beings, this is the best we could do. And the reality is, and this is the flaw in, in the anti-federalist view, if you went as far as the anti-federalists did, you could have very well given birth to tyranny. Ravi Zacharias has, an, has, a, has, a, has a message he gives where he talks about human history and he says, whenever the culture is too dominated by the state or by the church, there is always tyranny. That there must be a complementarian tension between the two. When one dominates the culture too much, there's always tyranny. And this is why we as Christians have to apologize for, let's name them, you're Catholic, Todd, so you know all the charges, inquisitions, crusades, right? That, sure. that, that's why we're still apologizing for things that happened five, 600 years ago. That's an example of the state or the church becoming too dominant in a culture and superseding the jurisdiction of the state. And then you have when the state becomes too dominant in a culture and supersedes the jurisdiction of the church, right? And we're much more prone to acknowledge the tyranny that goes against which one of those entities we side with the more. Not as prone to recognize the tyranny that is inflicted by the one we side with the more. And that's why I think the Constitution is not a perfect document. I think, though, it's probably the best this side of Eden we were capable of. Does that answer your question? Oh, and then some, but that's just a, a primer. I mean, you could have gone for a while. I know, but I wanted Aaron to get to ask some, make a point. So go ahead. Oh, mercy. Um, you should have kept going on on for that for a while. Um, is Are all of these principles, are they transplantable anywhere, or does it take a specific... Uh, location for these to actually uh, make sense. Like, was America just the perfect place at the perfect time mm. um, for Americanism? All of these principles that we've talked about to happen, or can these be? Are these universal? Can these be started in any place at any time? They can be started at any place at any time, but they also can't be. Meaning, their ideals. And those ideals, because we're all made in the image of God, C.S. Lewis once made the observation that the fact every major religious system has a very similar moral code, in his mind, was evidence. Evidence that we all come from the same DNA. We all come from the same creator. He wouldn't have used DNA in his day yet, but you know what I mean. Um, what I mean by that is that God makes the rainfall and the just and the unjust alike. God has revealed himself to peoples of disparate languages, customs, previous religious practices, or lack thereof, throughout the ages. And therefore, the principles that we are trying to conserve that he has generally revealed in nature are applicable to any people at any time if, and this is where the covenantal transaction takes place. You know, the, the, the covenant Moses gives the Israelites is not. God gave you the land, take it. The covenantal transaction is, I have given you blessing and cursing, life and death. Choose life, meaning obey God, and you will get to live in the land. All right? Live the way God called, and God will take it from there. He will smite your enemies. He will protect your borders. He'll expand your territory. 
And that's the key. This is the difference between conservatism and nationalism, by the way, what you're asking me. Is that really what you're asking me in a way? Yeah. Okay. I mean, the difference is this, nationalism is, is a, it would be this idea of a fatherland or a motherland. That, that there's something unique about us as a people, heritage-wise. There really isn't a people. I mean, the, the argument that Ted Cruz wasn't eligible to be president because both of his parents weren't natural-born citizens because Rafael immigrated from Cuba, well, congratulations. That means Millard Fillmore was the first president of the United States, guys. Okay? Oh, and by the way, all, the, the, the first president of the United States, George Washington, was a British subject until July 4th, 1776, guys. Okay? I mean, it's an asinine argument, frankly. That's a nationalistic argument. This idea that because of our borders, we are owed things and bestowed things. Now, there is some truth to that. We are, we are allowed the sovereignty of, our, of, our, of a nation. The first thing Almighty God gives, well, one of the first things Almighty God gives the Israelites when he founds his own nation, boundaries, borders. Border, boundary stones, they could not move these things, man, without literally the, the ancient Jewish version of papal dispensations. Those things could not be touched. They were sacrosanct, sacred. So there is some nationalistic truth. Paul stands up at the Areopagus at Mars Hill and says the, king of, the, the, the creator of the universe has decided how long everyone will live and where. I mean, when the, when the peoples of the world remove their borders and come together as one at Babel, how does God respond? No. So there is some truth to this, and I can see why people are attracted to nationalism. But it in and of itself is not why we are the way we are as a people. It's not what made us or will sustain us or allow us to remain who we were as a people. It is conserving that which our founders, flawed men themselves, looked at history and said, that's objectively true, that's not. That's objectively true, that's not. Preserve, conserve that. Get rid of that. That's got to go. Let's try this because they tried this before in human history and it didn't work. The reason we spent so much time going through the writings of the founders is be- it, there's, there's, it, it's numerous, but one of them is they had much hope for what the country they were founding could become and the model it could show the rest of the world. But almost none of that hope were, we're special because we're the 13 colonies, guys. We're special because we, because we came from Britain and learned Anglo-Saxon law through Blackstone. It wasn't because of that at all. It was because of this word they used a lot, and it came up a lot when we did this series, providence. That if we trust God, he will come through. And that is, I think, the difference between conservatism says, if you trust God, he will come through. Nationalism says, if there is a God, he owes something to us because we're just so good and special. And those are two totally different things in my mind. That answer your question? Yeah, well said. This is a two-part question. Uh, put together both the Declaration and the Constitution as you consider this. Uh, some of this is uh, you can focus on rhetoric and or you can focus on uh, structure, for example, the Constitution, high up, more flowery language, uh, aspirational language in the uh, preamble and then more structural down the way. W- uh, what uh, was the specifically what was the most naive thing? flat out useless thing despite good intentions despite even giving it a chance ultimately at the end of the day what was the thing that ultimately has been proven the biggest bust that's there 
and what's the most important thing, no matter how crazy, no matter the fact that they couldn't have possibly assumed that based on changes in the cult, in technology, what have you, over the course of our 200 plus years of existence, what's the thing that you would put in there just as an absolute must? I think that um, the mythology you're asking me to, is uh, this notion that we need to respond to those who loathe our heritage and want to tear it down and they want to agate prop it. That, that the right response to that is to overly romanticize it and nostalgicize it and idealize it when that's not needed either. And that's human. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. The serpent shows up to Eve and you know, God says, tell you what, you guys are, you Adam, you guys are in total charge here, man. I made this all for you. Go subdue it, you know, name the animals, you're in charge. Do what, I, I, I just had this one rule. I've, I, as the maker, I get to reserve something for myself, similar to when you make your own children and you're home, right? And you say, you know what? When the door is locked in our bedroom, we reserve that for ourselves. The rest of the home, we have given it to you. This is our thing. You don't intrude on that. This is your mom and I's sanctuary, right? And God said, this is mine. I made this all for you, but as the maker I and your maker, I reserve the right to set something aside for myself, and this is what I've set aside. So don't eat of it. Serpent comes along and says, oh, is that really what God said? And he said, well, God said not to even touch the fruit. Is that what God said? No. We do this all the time. We often confront a lie with our own tradition or legalism as opposed to the truth. I say this to my worldview students all the time. The truth is its own reward. The truth is good enough. Even when it hurts, even when it's painful, in the long run, the truth is good enough. We don't have to create these men to be mythic figures they weren't. And that doesn't mean, by the way, they weren't heroes. It just means they were men. We don't have to deny any of Alexander Hamilton or Aaron Burr's peccadilloes. We don't have to deny any of this. If it's false, defend them. But if it's not, all that tells us is, man, when they said Providence was gonna have to do this because humankind wasn't capable, they were right. In fact, their, fall their fallibilities, I think, add to the credibility of the American experiment because the whole American experiment hinges on, is there a God? And if so, does he give us our rights? And is, the, is he the ultimate adjudicator of the universe? And if he is, that means even flawed people can do good. Even flawed people can create and make justice. Even men who wrote all men are created equal and then went home and slept with their slaves, some of them did, can still be tools and instruments that would eventually give birth to the very system that would tell the world slavery is an evil that shall never return in future generations. And if we can't hope in that, we have no hope. That's exact, that is the hope. The hope of America is not that it's perfect, but that it's, that it's honesty about its imperfections and whom it's accountable to gives it the ultimate opportunity to reform itself. We have waited for hundreds of years for Islam to have a reformation. None is forthcoming. Yet we can amend our constitution. We can, we can have elections. We can change the whole course of who we are as a people because the system they gave us allows for us to account for our own mistakes and sinfulness. So I, I think we make errors in myth, particularly with the coming generation that's been very schooled and at times worked over about how bad the founding fathers were and everything else. That's just something I think that just won't translate to them. The truth is its own reward. It's good enough. And if I could go back to the founding, to your second part of your question, what I would say is there is no remedy for a people that will not, that just have given up. 
they, they couldn't have concocted a system for people that would just hand over their freedoms to unelected judges without shots fired. They, they, they would have started firing by now. And I, I, I don't want that to happen, by the way. I'm not advocating that. But guys, <laughs> our own history shows they, they grabbed muskets over less than some of the stuff we have seen. I would have said to them, make patently clear what are the remedies when the system, in, in, when the federal system fails us. What really is the doctrine of the lesser magistrate? What really is in, interposition? What really is nullification? Spell these things, what really is Article 5? Spell these things out more explicitly. So future generations would know this is what to do when they no longer, the, the, the government we sought to constrain in the way we wrote this constitution no longer desires to. Before you take to the streets and blow up the greatest experiment in human freedom of all time, do one, check every box, one, two, three, four, five. Let's make sure that it's insalvageable. Because what happens is when people feel helpless, that's when they feel, and when they feel like their votes don't count, and, the, and if my guy won the primary that you didn't like, you just lie about him and get rid of him, the stuff we talked about, when they get to that point, if there's no remedy, we know what the next step is because we're students of history, and we know what they will do. And I think they should have been more explicit in, here's what these things mean. When the judges say black is white and white is black and blue is gray and gray is blue, do this now. And not put it in the Federalist Papers, like Federalist 78 and 81, for example, but put it right there in the U.S. Constitution, made it very clear, so there's no reason Noah Rothman and I even need to have a conversation. It's all right there in black and white, and if Noah Rothman or anybody else doesn't want to follow through, then they have revealed that it's not that they don't understand, it's that they're just not with us. They're not on the same team. That's what I would have done. Did that answer your question? Yeah. One more. Aaron, go. Is there any point at which these principles are not recoverable for a culture yes i think we are rapidly approaching that point um i'd urge our audience if you've never read the letters jefferson and adams wrote to each other late in life i know a lot of people are familiar with the letters adams uh, and you know and his wife abigail wrote back and forth to each other throughout um, his life and his public life. But, you know, there's some interesting conversations between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. A lot of people don't realize this. They were the best of friends. Then they were bitter rivals. And then after their public life was over, they were the best of friends again. They actually died on the same day, July 4th, the same day, the same year. It's amazing serendipity. And in one of the conversations the two men have with one another, I can't remember who it was that asked the other, but the question was asked in one of their correspondences, once a culture has recovered its virtue or lost its virtue, can it be recovered? And when you look at human history, the answer is no, with one exception, and that's the, the, the Israelite people in, under the Old Covenant. But they operated under a direct theocracy, meaning they were being directly governed by God, not indirectly by God's providence, his general revelation, but he was directly moving, anointing directly kings, priests, etc. Okay, that's the difference between an indirect theocracy. I would argue every government's an indirect theocracy, it's just a matter who the theo is, all right? But there's not too many direct theocracies. Ancient Israel is one of them. And so when you have Almighty God literally moving the chessboard himself directly, this is your diaspora punishment. This brings you back to revival. Short of that historical arc in human history, I, I don't know of a nation that can say 
once they've lost their virtue, they've recovered it. It's debatable. Some of the later awakenings that we had in America, if you're Pentecostal and listening to us, you probably would go to the beginning of the 20th century and the Azusa Street Revival. And you would say that was an example of a country that kind of was losing its virtue. And we had this revival that sparked the modern American Pentecostal church. But even if you accept all of those things, those are rare. And this is why I've said throughout the course of the last few years of my career, if we don't have revival, then we're going to be toast. Because if if you can't really have, if if you don't have, the linchpin of our way of life, guys, is God-given rights. Because if God's not the grantor of our rights, then guess who they be, guess who the grantor becomes? Government. And at that point, you're just negotiating your tyranny. That's what you're negotiating, your tyranny. But when God is the grantor of your rights, then God is the respecter of no persons, and the government must respect God's edicts every bit as much as the governed. We get rid of that, though, and then you're just negotiating your tyranny. We are very close to getting rid of that. Very close. And I think if we don't see revival in the next generation, we likely will. Now, does, I, don't, I don't know that we just go away if that happens. You know, I mean, Rome had great moral declines, but it took ultimately, what were we, 1453? Is that the year? Finally, when the Ottomans took out Constantinople. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, from the 6th century to the, uh, to the 15th, that's a lot of time of Rome. Rome's decline lasted a long time, all right? And they didn't have, as Chekhov likes to say, nuclear vessels, okay? Meaning they didn't have weapons of mass destruction to point at their, their would-be, uh, you know, uh, provocateurs. You know, Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun, ain't coming across the Atlantic or the Pacific guys without a fight that they didn't get back in the Middle and Dark Ages because we have weapons of mass destruction, so that somewhat insulates the rate and rapidity of our decline. But in decline, we most assuredly are. It's just a question of are we in decline for the setup of a revival? Or are we in, is this the, you know, the Sir Ed, is this the sequel to Sir Edmund, Gibbon, Sir Edmund Gibbons, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire? And we don't know the answer to that yet. And it's, it's unlikely that will be determined in any of our lifetimes. Final thoughts, Todd? Well, uh, I was thankful for this book uh, when I initially uh, read it, and I've read others by uh, Skousen as well, Um, but I'm even more thankful for this tour through it now with the eyes I have and the ears I have, uh, because the the reading of it now is closer to the truth. Uh, I was inspired when I first read it. And I am something else now. And that something else is closer to the truth. I wasn't wrong to be inspired by it, but it, 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 it speaks to the question Aaron asked about the timing. Uh, this, unfortunately, reading it with the eyes I had, I didn't know at the time when I first read it, but um, it, it, was, it can be most accurately painted as nostalgia. Um, I, I desperately wanted something... Um, that has now seemingly passed us by short of a miracle. But, as Steve says, the truth is its own reward. And reading it through the eyes I have now is just simply closer to the truth, and I'm grateful for that. Aaron? What's nostalgia? I want some. <laughs> um, 
I, One thing we can safely say millennials are not going to have to wrestle with that their yeah. elders did yeah. is is holding on too yeah. firmly to nostalgia. Don't look back. Of Ameri- Never look back. Of Americanism anyway. 90s, uh, the 90s kid um, trope is is in, in full effect. Uh, final observation. The fact that we have fallen so quickly and continue to fall so precipitously from these principles. I mean, hearing each week, each title of each chapter was like a gut punch. Like, there's nothing that we do well in this country en masse. But the fact that we've fallen so quickly, but yet we've lasted, this country has still lasted so long, and we still have an opportunity, if we had the wherewithal, to turn things around is just a testament to how uh, amazing the system of government is that the founders set up. It is a testament to how solid it is and how, how, how it could be, again, that we have fallen away so quickly, but yet we still have an opportunity to save what's left of Americana. That should give us at least some modicum of hope, although on this day... I'm not feeling uh, that hopeful. Well, I hope over the course of this last almost 11 months of this series, and all of these now are available on our podcast page, including the ones we did behind the paywall. So I, I hope that this series gave you some hope. Not false, fake hope. This is going to take more than bumper stickers or whoever the next Democrat is has to be beaten no matter how bad the Republican is because Western civilization, we're way beyond any of that now. We, we are at first principles now. We are at one of Todd's favorite blogs. It's called First Things. That's where we are right now. We are in Nehemiah's wall-building mode. We are rebuilding the walls of a civilization. But in order to rebuild them, we have to know what first built them. Thanks for tuning in to today's free podcast. Don't forget our show on CRTV.com, promo code DACE if you'd like to watch. Until then, John 317. Steve Dace. I like it, you.